0: Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Last week, we began a series of messages called Things to Know Before You go, and we're talking about what the scriptures can tell us about some things that all of us will ultimately be facing, like aging, and death, and dying, and the life to come. It was the famous American statesman, Benjamin Franklin, who was the first one credited with saying, nothing is certain in life except death and taxes, And many years later, the great American humorist, Will Rogers, expanded upon Franklin's original statement by saying, the only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. (laughs) And here is my humble addendum to both of those statements. Nobody likes to talk about either death or taxes. However, accurate information about something that is going to happen is not just comforting, it's compelling. It's not merely optional. It's really essential, and it's not a periphery concern. It's a priority matter. So last week, we looked at several scriptures that talked about aging, and I encourage you to go to our website or to go to our YouTube channel, and you can check out last week's message if you missed it. Will Williman, who wrote a great book, I got so much information from titled Aging, Will Williman wrote this, Aging is a natural, predictable life process that imperceptibly begins at birth, accelerates in a few decades, eventually becomes undeniable and ends in death and is the dominant factor in the last third of most people's lives. You know, though the reality of our mortality may have reverberated somewhere around in our consciousness, as something unpleasant that we don't like to think about or talk about, or something that happens to somebody else, the older we get, the more aware we become of what's next. But we've seen, haven't we? Time after tragic time over the last several weeks. You don't have to be an elderly person to be confronted with the reality of death. You don't have to have a terminal disease before the horror and irreversible loss That death can bring you. We've seen it. You may be shopping at a grocery store. You may be attending a worship service. You may be sitting in a classroom at school. You may be waiting for an appointment in the doctor's office. Maybe you just show up for work at the factory. Just in the past month. In all these settings and more. We've seen people senselessly slain. And families tragically torn apart. And whole communities intensely grieving. And a nation is helplessly terrorized and paralyzed about what might happen next. And deeply polarized about what can be done about it. Today I want to tell you about a close-up experience I had with an act of terrorism a few years ago. I see these mass shootings, regardless of the shooter's motives, as acts meant to terrorize and antagonize and polarize people. Now, the story I want to share with you did not take place in America, but it did kill Americans, one of which I knew quite well. On March 22nd of 2016, three coordinated terrorist attacks in Brussels, Belgium, were carried out by an organization called the Islamic State of Iran. Two at the Brussels International Airport, and one at a bus station on the Brussels Metro route. 32 civilians were killed, along with three suicide bombers. 300 people were injured. The perpetrators belonged to a terrorist cell that had been involved in the November 2015 attacks in Paris. The Brussels bombings happened shortly after a series of police raids targeting the group. The bombings were the deadliest attack on Belgium soil since World War II. The Belgian government declared three days of national mourning while searching among the rubble to identify the deceased and to find any survivors. If there were any, my oldest daughter, Anna, sent me a panicked message saying that Stephanie Moore and her husband Justin Schultz, this is Stephanie, this is Justin, they were living in Brussels at the time and they went missing after they dropped off Stephanie's mom at the airport on the morning of the bombing. Stephanie was a very close childhood friend of Anna's from our church in Lexington, Kentucky. This is a bad picture. I probably took it. But that's a a, a teenage version of my oldest daughter, Anna. I didn't know her hair was ever frizzy like that. And that is Stephanie. When she came to visit us at the time we were living in Ohio, Stephanie's mom and dad are Gary and Carolyn Moore. They were very involved in our ministry in Lexington, friends of mine and my wife. And my heart sank as day after day they searched for Stephanie and Justin. And the longer the search went on, the more apparent it became that they were most likely among the 32 killed. In the deadly blast and just days after the attack they were confirmed among the victims through their dental records my first thought was why would anybody want to kill Stephanie Moore Stephanie was the sweetest she was the most respectful she was the most polite little girl among Anna's friends and she was always a joy To have in our home not long after they identified Stephanie and her husband Justin's bodies I received a phone call from Gary and Carolyn Moore now you need to know it had been over 20 years since I had served as their pastor not a lot of contact in that period of time I knew what they wanted they asked me to do a funeral service for Stephanie and her husband in Lexington I've done a lot of funerals over my years in ministry, and I've seen some tragic situations. I've done the funerals of babies that died from sudden infant death syndrome. I did the funeral of a two-year-old boy that drowned in a pond. I did a funeral of a family of four. Mom and dad and her two little girls that all perished in a house fire, had all their funerals at once. I did the funeral of a murder-suicide. The, the young man killed his ex-girlfriend and killed himself. I did his funeral. This is the first time I'd ever done a funeral for victims of a terrorist attack. What do you say? I want to share with you part of what I said at that funeral. And at the close of this message, I want to share another part of that message because I think it can help us in this cultural moment. Not only with the shocking suddenness of death that we read about daily, but the severity of the loss that those left behind have to live with, with the rest of their lives, long after the media's moved on to cover the next mass shooting. Here's how it started. I've learned over the years that ministry means never knowing what the next phone call will bring. In some ways you learn to expect the unexpected, but learning that Stephanie Moore Schultz and her husband Justin were killed in a terrorist bombing in Belgium is still hard for me to take in. I've never known anyone personally who was killed in an act of terror until now, and to think that it would be Stephanie is both outrageous and an outrage. Stephanie and Justin represented the best among us in so many ways. There were two highly successful young adults who were bright, attractive, adventuresome, caring, competent, compassionate, with wonderful support systems. Those who knew them envied their lives and lived vicariously through them They ran with the bulls in Spain. They slept on an ice bed in Norway. I'm not sure why anybody would want to do that. They swam with sharks in Dubai. They had communion with the Pope and the Vatican on Easter. They jumped off cliffs in Costa Rica, and they skydived out of perfectly good airplanes and took in breathtaking views from the top of the Eiffel Tower. They sound like they literally lived out the lyrics of Tim McGraw's hit song from several years back, Live Like You Were Dying. Their lives may not have been full of years, but their limited years were certainly full of life. And then in a sudden, sickening flash, it's over. And they're no longer with us. We call their deaths an act of terrorism because that's what it seeks to do, strike terror and fear in our hearts. And we have to confess, sometimes it works. We are afraid, we fear for our safety. We fear losing our loved ones, like that. We fear the loss of life as we know it. And we fear it can happen at times and places when we least expect it. Like dropping off your mom at the airport. The unpredictable nature and timing of these heinous acts leave us all feeling vulnerable and suspicious and less inclined to trust and to risk. That's how I started. That funeral message. And I would add now, I've also learned that death seems like such a brief word to explain the ending of a life. The sudden and awful realization that something precious is now gone and is irretrievable is at first incomprehensible. It is in those moments that we realize what it means for death to be what the scripture writers call an enemy. And friends, it's not just an enemy that takes away from you what you most hold dear. It is an enemy that is coming after you as well. Lisa Rotgrack, hope I said her name right, is the author of a book titled Death Warmed Over. It's a combination cookbook and sociological study of funeral meals and rituals. And she starts the book off with the story of a man Dying at home in his bed. And he could smell the aroma of chocolate chip cookies. His all-time favorite food, baking in the kitchen. He so wanted to taste just one more cookie before he died. He dragged his ailing body out of bed, he crawled into the kitchen, he reached out a trembling arm to grab one final cookie when he felt the sting of a spatula smack his hands. Put that back, his wife said, they're for the funeral. The truth is, there's a funeral coming for all of us. And it is the finality of that reality that led parents from many generations ago to teach their children this oft-repeated bedtime prayer. Some of you know it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's a cheery way to send your kids off to bed, isn't it? I was really taught to pray this. But there's actually a second verse that's even more morbid. Here's how it goes. Our days begin with trouble here. Our life is but a span, and cruel death is always near. So frail a thing is man. So night-night, honey, sweet dreams. (laughs) People used to teach this to their kids routinely to pray like that. Why? Because in a day when the average lifespan was about 40 to 50 years of age... And when many children died young due to outbreaks of widespread diseases that had no cure, that were just as deadly, if not more so, than the coronavirus, they wanted their children to know that death is real, but it's not the end. Yes, death is an enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. As we said last week, normal, predictable aging that ends in death cannot be defied, but it has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Death is fatal, but it does not have to be final. And that's why the scripture writers use many different descriptions for death that all speak of a life beyond this life. Here's just a few of these rich, picturesque, scriptural characterizations of death. Gathered. Before the Jewish patriarch Jacob died he gathered his sons around him and he gave instructions and blessing to each of them. And then the writer of Genesis records this. He drew his feet up into the bed. He breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and his father, Isaac, were also said to be gathered to their people when they died. Death could be the loneliest event of all. Before a believer, it leads to a family Reunion, we're gathered with our people. Reassured is another biblical concept. At age 110, Joseph told his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid. What a beautiful reassurance to give loved ones that you leave behind when you die. Even though I will no longer be here, God will still be with you. Rested. When King David of Israel died, the biblical writer said he Rested with his ancestors. Perhaps building upon that idea, John, the writer of Revelation, later wrote, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Here's another one. Returned. Solomon describes death as a time when the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to the God who gave it. Dismissed. A devout old man named Simeon waited faithfully for the Messiah of Israel to come upon encountering the Christ child in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought him to be dedicated. Here's what we read. Simeon took him in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. What a beautiful way to think of death. Lord, dismiss your servant in peace. Simeon viewed his approaching death as if the Lord were like a teacher saying to the class, class dismissed. Or a commanding military officer giving the order at ease, soldier. Departed at a unique event in the life of Jesus called the Transfiguration Gospel Writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe a heavenly light that surrounded Jesus as he talked with the departed saints, Moses and Elijah, two of the most important leaders in Israel's history who had died long before the time of Jesus on this earth. And look at what it says. They spoke about his, Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter who was one of the apostles to witness this otherworldly conversation, later used that same term in reference to his own death when he wrote these words. I will make every effort to see that after my departure, talking about his death, you will always be able to remember these things. The Greek word for departure is exodos, from which we get our word exit, meaning the way out. You see, for a Christian... Death isn't an inescapable trap. On the contrary, because of Jesus, we know the way out. Death is an exit, not an extermination. Someone has said, earth's exodus is heaven's genesis. There's an old story told about a florist who mixed up two delivery orders on a busy day. A new business was opening, and a family was having a funeral. And both of them had ordered flowers for the occasion, but the baskets got switched in the delivery process, so the new business got the funeral spray, and the grieving family got the new business bouquet. The guy with the new business came in the next day, and he was furious. He said, the flowers that were delivered to my business on my opening day said, rest in peace. (laughs) The florist said, you think you have problems? You should have seen the people that just left here. They had a funeral, and they got a spray that said, good luck in your new location. Awaken is another biblical word. The prophet Daniel foresaw a time when multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. And Paul later declared, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Same word, awakened. However, I want to tell you this. There is one widely popular euphemism for death that nowhere appears in any of the books of the Bible in reference to a Christian's death. You know what the term is? Passed away. How many times do we use that phrase? Passed away. On the contrary. The words we read in the New Testament are these. The world and its desire pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Christians don't pass away. Like Jacob, we will be gathered to our people For a reunion of God's family, even better, Paul says, we will be with the Lord forever. Heard about a woman who approached her pastor and asked if he would do her a favor. And the pastor said, well, I normally try to do anything I can to help what you need. The woman said, well, my dog just died. I'd like for you to perform a memorial service for him. And the pastor was shocked, frankly, a little insulted to be asked to do a funeral for a canine. But he didn't want to hurt the woman's feelings. So he said, well, actually, I'm going to be out of town the next few days. Why don't you ask the local dog pound, see what they recommend? The woman said, thank you for the suggestion, pastor. I have $10,000 to give to whoever does my dog's funeral. I'll just give to them. And the pastor said, oh, ma'am, you didn't tell me your dog's a Christian. (laughs) It really does make all the difference in the world when you die if you're a Christian, but there's another way to think about death that has become popular in our increasingly skeptical secular culture. Anyone recognize the name Mel Blank? Mel Blank. He was the voice behind all the cartoon characters and Looney Tunes. Daffy Duck what was the rabbit. Bugs Bunny. Thank you. Yeah. At the end of every movie, you'd see Porky Pig come out on the screen. And you always say the same thing, adia, adia, adia. That's all, folks. In 1990, Mel Blank died. You know what his family put on his tombstone? That's his, that's his tombstone. That's all, folks. Many people in our increasingly sec- secular and skeptical society believe that when life ends, that's all, folks. In an interview with the British daily newspaper, The Guardian, The famous atheist physicist Stephen Hawking was quoted as saying, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Distinguished Oxford University mathematics professor Sir John Lennox who's a brilliant thinker and a committed follower of Jesus, was asked to respond to Hawking's statement. And Lennox wittily replied, atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. (laughs) That's a pretty good answer, isn't it? Others seem content to adopt a we-can't-really-know-for-sure attitude about life beyond death. Hollywood film legend Kirk Douglas, who died in February 2020... At the age of 103, said, I have studied religion, and I have concluded that there is some power, but we don't understand it. And still many others live in a constant terror about death. Back in 2015, the New York Times ran an article about former CNN host Larry King and his obsession with death. The article says his day begins with reading obituaries and he ponders who will give the eulogy at his funeral. He smiles as he thinks it might be Bill Clinton. And then his face becomes blank and he says, but I won't be there to see it. King has survived a heart attack, quintuple quintuple bypass surgery, prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven marriages and divorces. He was 77 years old when CNN dropped him. And when that happened, he became aware that there really will come a day when he dies. And according to the article, to move against aging and death, Larry King took hormone pills for human growth, four of them each day. He planned for his body to be frozen so that someday he might live again. The New York Times writer reports King conceding, I know it's nuts, but at least it gives me a shred of hope. And then King said this, other people have no hope. (laughs) Larry King finally succumbed to death in January of 2020. And now he knows. What is our hope as Christians in the face of death? Do we understand what happens at death? Can we be sure where we're going after death? What kind of life will eternal life be? Is it just a continuation of present conditions? Or is it something totally different? Where is heaven? Will some people really go to hell? Where or how does the resurrection of the body fit into any of this? Those are some of the questions I hope we can answer over the next couple weeks about death, life beyond life after death, and living ready for either. I agree. As I said last week with the great New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, when he said the classic answer to the questions of death and beyond these days is not so much disbelieved as simply as not known. People don't know what the Scriptures teach. I think that's exactly what Paul was dealing with when he wrote to some of the earliest followers of Jesus. In many churches, he helped plant, like the church in Thessalonica. And he wrote these, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. There is a sense in which Larry King is right. Many people have no hope in death. But Paul says there's some vital information available to us about death that can help us face death with hope. And to talk about that hope, and to wrap up, I want to return to the funeral of Stephanie and Justin Schultz. And I want to share what I closed that service with. I said, if Stephanie and Justin's young lives, taken too soon from us, teach us anything, they teach us to live passionately, love completely, and to learn humbly every day of our lives. Because when you think about it, we don't have control over many things in life. We don't get to decide where we were born, who our parents would be, or which period and culture we would live in. We didn't get to decide the two dates on our gravestone. None of us know when our time on this earth will be up. It could be next week or next year or decades away. Only God knows that. And our lives are in his hands, but there's one thing we have a vast amount of control over. We get to choose how we will live. We can live with fear, or we can live with faith. We can live regretting the opportunities we passed up, or we can live remembering the obstacles we overcame. We can live saying, if only. Or we can live saying, what a ride. The aim of terrorism is to get us to live lives that are held hostage to fear and hate and to be bound in an ever-diminishing world. The tactics of terror are torn from the ultimate terrorist playbook written by the enemy of every human soul who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus exposed his dark agenda and then offered the best counterterrorism strategy this world will ever know. Jesus said, but I have come that they may have life and life to the full. When terrorists strike, governmental agencies launch full-scale investigations. Highly skilled and trained officers seek first answers and then ultimately justice. Elected officials and people in power enact policies to prevent future attacks. People seeking to be in power then rise up claiming their side has the better answers. But behind all of that work, and much of it is good and needed, lies this question. Why? Why? why. And it's a why that goes deeper than culture and deeper than religion and deeper than poor policies and oppressive structures and corrupt politicians and inequitable economics and inferior education and every other reason we continually hear to explain these unspeakable acts of violence. And behind them all is the oldest and truest reason for it all It's human sin, because at the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The brilliant Russian dissident and author Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but through every human heart. This universal condition infects all of us, friends and foe, kings and peasants, citizens and immigrants, and makes us susceptible to the satanic schemes that would steal our hope, kill our loved ones, and destroy our dreams. Friends, we are a fallen race living in a fallen place. And without a Christ-centered, life-giving view of God and our fellow human beings, we perpetrate unspeakable acts against one another from a deceitful heart, which all the while believes itself to be in the right, and the broken continue to break the broken. And yet a tragedy like this shows us another aspect of ourselves. It is an element we don't hear enough about in our daily news feeds. It's the part we see when perfect strangers run headlong into the smoke of fresh explosions to help a fallen fellow human being. Carolyn Moore, Stephanie's mother, was standing in line waiting to check in for her flight back home to Kentucky. Probably the only reason Carolyn wasn't killed Is because Carolyn's about that tall and people were standing taller than her almost like a human barrier when the bomb went off that took the lives of her daughter and son-in-law who just dropped her off although she was unaware of it at the time and Carolyn told me in the surreal moments after the blast she encountered a woman she'd never seen before who was standing outside the airport this woman consoled her, guided her, and instructed her on getting the word out to recover Stephanie and Justin. Carolyn said she never got her name. She never saw her again after those first chaotic, chaotic hours. Carolyn referred to her simply as her smoking angel because she was smoking a cigarette. And thank God for visits from smoking angels unaware or from fellow human strugglers who seek to bear one another's burdens even if it is momentarily. We're all a fallen race, this is true, and yet there's more to us. We're also image bearers of a great and good God. There's a deposit of God-likeness within each of us which comes out even in our darkest of moments and perhaps especially in such moments. So what are we to make of this dual reality? How can we find life when we're surrounded by death? How can we love when the urge to hate is so strong and so seemingly justified? How can we hear the voice of truth when we're inundated with so many lies? There was one who not only showed us the image of God, but was the exact likeness of him. He came from the Father full of grace and truth, and we read in him there was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overpowered it. Friends, Jesus experienced the deepest darkness ever known as he went to the cross and when he died on the cross. Dark with Judas' betrayal. Dark with Peter's denial. Dark with the abandonment of the disciples he trained for three years. Dark with Herod's mockery. Dark with Pilate's cowardly decision. Dark with the religious leader's hypocrisy. Dark with Satan's glee. Dark in that sealed tomb. But listen to me, friends. God does some of his best work in the dark. New life, think about it. New life always starts in the dark, whether it's a seed planted in the ground, a baby growing in a womb, or Jesus in the tomb. Because just three days later, before the sun came up, the sun was up sharing his light and life-giving message by meeting with frightened women and eating with his stunned disciples and conversing along a country road with confused travelers, appearing first here and there. The story of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection shows us that in Christ, darkness, selfishness, terror, sin, and human depravity can be and will be once and for all overcome. And friend, that's that's the only hope that can console the deepest why of our present pain. Friends, the ultimate answer of God to the question of why is there such tragedy and suffering is not with words, but with the Word, the Word who became flesh. God's Ultimate answer is not found in an explanation, but an incarnation. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, entering our world, taking our sorrows and sins, experiencing the brutality of life, tasting the sting of death, and then rising victoriously again. The families of Stephanie and Justin Schultz were asked to do what no parent should ever have to do. They were asked to identify the bodies of their deceased son and daughter. And they were asked to do so on Easter Sunday morning, March 27th, 2016. As long as I live, I'll never forget what Carolyn Moore told me. She said, when they asked her, if she could perform this heart-piercing assignment, Carolyn Moore said these great words. I was so proud of her as her former pastor. She said, it's Easter Sunday, and the tomb is empty. I can do this. There's a song we sang for the first time at Journey on that Easter Sunday of 2016, just days before I would fly to Lexington, Kentucky, for Stephanie and Justin's funeral. We're going to stand and sing that song Again, in just a moment. But listen to the words of the chorus, maybe in a way you've not heard it before in light of what I just shared about this funeral. By your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name, I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me that is precisely the sentiment that Paul closes. His greatest chapter he ever penned on the subject of death and dying and the resurrection. His first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul wrote, so this body that can be destroyed will clothe itself with that which can never be destroyed. And this body that dies will clothe itself with that which can never die. And when this happens, this scripture will be made true. Death is destroyed forever in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your pain or sting? Death's power to hurt is sin. The power of sin is the law. But we thank God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, stand strong. Do not let anything move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your work in the Lord is never wasted, and it's never in vain. Amen? Let's stand together right now. Let's stand. So, Father, we thank you that even as we are confronted individually, personally, as a community, as a nation, or globally with the final enemy, that enemy does not have the final word because the word that became flesh, the word that was full of grace and truth from the Father, the word that resurrected over the grave and gives us victory even as we face death. We thank you, Father, for that. We pray, Lord, you'll just help our thoughts get more in line with your thoughts on this topic. So many people are confused, not just about aging, but certainly about death and dying. God, thank you for the light you've shed through the scriptures. Most of all, thank you for the light that the darkness can never overcome the light of Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of all men. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.